Welcome to Final Examination, a podcast that looks at the end of the world. I'm Paul Musgrave, and I'm a professor of political science at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Over the past semester in the fall of 2018, four teams of students have researched, reported, and produced stories about how people have dealt with the end of the world right here in Massachusetts. In this episode, Nate Reynolds and Abby McDonough take us to Ponkapog to answer the question, why did a civilization of Christian American Indians that coexisted with English Puritans disappear in the 18th century? Most children enjoy hearing ghost stories, but rarely do they enter one themselves. Stephen Turley and Mark Nannery were only 12 years old when they uncovered the secret of a 200-year-old Indian burial ground beneath their quiet Massachusetts town. These children accidentally shed the first light in centuries on a society once engulfed in war, indoctrinated by its leaders, murdered by its sworn protectors, and forgotten in history. Until now. The date? September 13, 1969. The place? Canton, Massachusetts. A mystery had been brewing in the town for some time. A year earlier, a resident's dog had sauntered home carrying a human skull in its mouth that the Canton police attempted to trace to no avail, until two young boys stumbled upon the answer on that fateful September day. Stephen Turley and Mark Nannery were exploring an abandoned gravel pit in the neighborhood behind Berlin when they found an ancient-looking clay pipe embedded in the ground. Intrigued, the 12-year-old boys dug further, excitedly shifting through the dust and sand. What they found next was not formed out of clay. They were bones real human bones. First a jaw, then a leg. By the time Stephen found his father, the local elementary school principal, to show him what they had discovered, every kid in the neighborhood was digging in the gravel for whatever they could find. When archaeologist Dina Dinkaz and her team arrived at the site four days later, parts of two skeletons had already been unearthed in the pit. Dinkaz was able to fit the Canton boys' mysterious discovery right into place in Massachusetts history. Unbeknownst to their gleeful searching, the children had unearthed a story of the end of a world that was entombed underground decades before the American Revolution. The remnants discovered in Canton belonged to an 18th century American Indian named Simon George. During George's lifetime, the town of Canton was known as Ponkapog, organized by English settlers in their early colonial history as a place to convert American Indians to Christianity. Simon George died in 1739 as one of the last members of the Praying Indians, a society where the English peacefully coexisted with Massachusetts natives who adopted Christianity as their own religion. If this world was so prosperous, why was the Ponkapog burial ground discovered in Canton left unmarked and forgotten? What happened to the Praying Indians? We'll find out after this message from our sponsors. We'd like to thank the Commonwealth Honors College at UMass Amherst for participating in our podcast. The Commonwealth Honors College is a community of scholars that provides an inclusive and diverse environment for students who are passionate about their studies. Alongside the vast resources of a large public research university, the Commonwealth Honors College offers immersive courses in all fields of study and provides students a personal and hands-on space to prosper through smaller discussion-based classes.
Admission to the Honors College is open to incoming first-year students, current UMass students in their first two years of study, and transfer students from other universities. To learn more, follow the Commonwealth Honors College on Twitter at UMassCHC, online at www.honors.umass.edu, or visit the Bloom Advising Center on the second floor of the Honors College building. To understand how the praying Indian world ended, we must go back in history. My name is Nate Reynolds. And I'm Abby McDonough. We're here to help guide you through the true story of the praying Indians of Massachusetts. It's a tale of conflicting cultures, interests, and armies. It is a tale of the end of the world. Before we start, we'll take a moment to acknowledge the terms we're using. When referring to the general, non-European population of indigenous descent, we'll use the term American Indian. While this term does have colonizer roots, it is consistent with academic literature. Additionally, American Indian has been positively reclaimed and redefined in the modern era. When possible, we will use specific tribal names or self-assigned titles. The term praying Indian is used in reference to the specific society of Christian American Indians in Massachusetts during this time period. The classical story of English settlers and American Indians in Massachusetts is a familiar one, wrought with bloodshed, sickness, betrayal, and death. However, it fails to recognize a small faction that lived a very different history. Arriving in 1620, Massachusetts Bay colonists introduced many new concepts to the area, Christianity, new weapons, and perhaps most devastatingly, disease. The surviving American Indians were viewed as an unknown and dangerous entity by the European colonists who had their own disparate languages, religions, and culture. In an effort to assimilate American Indians, the General Court of Massachusetts passed an Act for the Propagation of the Gospel Amongst the Indians in 1646. The Christianization campaign was led by Massachusetts Puritan settlers and was supported by the Massachusetts and British governments, along with prominent institutions such as Harvard University. In 1650, Harvard University established the Harvard Indian College. It initially began as a fundraising effort for the broader university, but it was a school entirely dedicated to the education of American Indian youth. American Indians did not have to pay for tuition and housing so long as they studied the gospel. It was the hope of the Harvard Indian School and its supporters that graduates would go on to spread the word of the Christian gospel and their American Indian communities. However, true Christianization could not occur until the Bible was translated. This was a difficult task as hardly any Puritan spoke the languages of the American Indians they viewed as savages. One man felt that it was his God-given duty to convert American Indians to Christianity, and he began to translate the Bible into one of the most common native languages, Algonquin. This man was John Eliot, a Puritan pastor and missionary. In 1646, Eliot was called to New England native communities, and he founded the first praying town in the area of Natick, Massachusetts. After he was able to successfully translate the Bible into Algonquin, which was printed at the Harvard Indian School, Eliot began to preach more frequently in these praying towns and was received peacefully. As Eliot once wrote, It is to come then unto them, to teach them to know God and Jesus Christ, and call upon his name. For whereas there did used to be gaming and much evil at those great meetings, now there is praying to God and good conference, and observation of the Sabbath, by such as are well-minded. Following Natick's initial success, the second praying town of Ponkapog was settled in 1654. In these praying towns, the Christianized American Indian population could live, worship, and assimilate to English culture. They disregarded old hunter-gatherer ways of life, along with traditional dress ceremonies, cultural activities, and means of education. 
Anything that was deemed traditionally Indian was seen as savage and was not permitted in praying towns. Praying Indians were afforded a relatively high level of freedom and were able to self-govern. So, John Eliot seems like a nice guy. But what we need to understand is Eliot's motive. Why did he want to Christianize Native people so badly? Well, John Eliot wished to civilize the American Indians, but he was not a champion of their culture. In a letter to Major General Humphrey Atherton, a town leader of nearby Dorchester, Eliot petitioned for the establishment of the praying town Ponkapog, writing, Though our poor Indians are much molested in most places in their meetings in way of civilities, yet the Lord hath put it into your hearts to suffer us to meet quietly at Ponkapog. Why would the praying Indians want to work with a man who deemed their society uncivil? Well, the reason is simple. Initial mutual benefit. American Indians who converted to Christianity and began the process of assimilation were able to survive more easily. Their societies were already decimated from disease, their language was being eradicated, and their means of livelihood were quickly deemed uncivilized and irrelevant by wealthy colonists. One praying Indian who lived in Natick, Penampum, wrote of his experience in 1656. While my father lived and I was young, I was at play, and my father rebuked me and said, We shall all die shortly. That same winter the pox came. All my kindred died, only my mother and I lived. All those days I sinned and prayed to all gods and did as others did. There I lived till the minister came to teach us. Compared to the ways that English colonists treated non-Christianized Indians, the praying Indians were much better off. This is not to say that the praying Indians were lucky. They had to watch their culture be erased, and they were not allowed to mourn the loss of their previous world for fear of punishment from the colonists. Still, while non-praying Indians were given blankets from the colonists that were purposely infected with smallpox, praying Indians could attend school and govern themselves. And while non-praying Indians watched their villages and settlements burn to the ground at the hands of the colonists, the praying Indians were invited to start their own settlements in the prosperous southeastern Massachusetts region. For a short time, the colonists and the praying Indians were able to coexist in this sort of in-between state, until war struck. The end of the praying Indian world began with one of its early members. John Sassamon was an American Indian from Natick whose intelligence had caught the eye of John Eliot. Sassamon taught Eliot his native language, was appointed as a schoolmaster to teach fellow praying Indians about Christianity, and served as an interpreter between the American Indians and colonists. In December 1674, Sassamon warned the colonists that Wampanoag chief Metacomet, also known as King Philip, was meeting with other American Indian tribal leaders to plan an attack on the English. A month later, Sassamon was found dead in the icy waters of a local pond. The colonists arrested and executed three Wampanoag men for the crime, but it was too late to stop the brewing war. On June 24, 1675, the Wampanoags and their allies led the first attack on the English town of Swansea, officially starting what would become one of America's bloodiest conflicts, King Philip's War. There was a massive amount of destruction across New England. Today, it remains one of the bloodiest conflicts in American history. One in ten soldiers on both sides are estimated to have been killed. And in the midst of this battle between colonists and American Indians were the praying Indians. Where did their loyalties lie? Was John Eliot able to convince the praying Indians to trust the colonists? John Eliot had tried but failed to convert King Philip to Christianity. And as a result, the praying Indians were not safe during the war from American Indians sieging Puritan towns. Neither were they fully trusted by the English. In October 1675, just four months after the start of the war, the Massachusetts General Court ordered that all praying Indians from Natick be removed and sent to Deer Island, a small island off the coast of Boston. In the eyes of the colonists, this prevented a potential alliance between the praying Indians and their non-Christian counterparts. 
However, Deer Island was a death sentence for hundreds of praying Indians. They were not given food or clothing and were forbidden from hunting, lighting fires, or tearing down trees on the island. Eventually, praying Indians from other Massachusetts town were also interned, and they occupied the island for about a year. In the cold Massachusetts winter, conditions on Deer Island were unbearable. At one point during King Philip's War, John Elliott, now in his 70s, attempted to row out to the island to deliver food and supplies. However, his boat was intercepted by colonists. In war, it was no longer politically convenient for the Puritans to stand behind Elliott's mission. Christianity could no longer protect the praying Indians from being associated with the larger native population. By the time John Elliott personally paid for the removal of the praying Indians from Deer Island, over half had perished in the cold. Even for survivors, the praying Indians' days were numbered following the tragedy of Deer Island and the general destruction of King Philip's War. The politically advantageous pact reared by John Elliott between the English and the American Indians had grown into a unique world over 50 years, and now this world was ending. King Philip's War had a devastating cultural impact on Puritan society's view of American Indians. Puritans were less agreeable to John Elliott's cordial offer of assimilation in the wake of massive death tolls and property damage in a war against natives, destruction that would be felt for years after the conflict. This reignited divide had tangible effects in the political support for Christianization programs, including the Harvard Indian College. Once promised to be the flagship institution for Christianizing the praying Indians, the school closed its doors in 1670 and the building was dismantled in 1698. But the experiment had already backfired. Only five Native students had ever enrolled at the school, and three of these five have fallen victim to the deadly epidemics that wiped out over 75% of the local Native population in this time. John Eliot's Christianization experiment collapsed before his eyes. In addition, American Indian property within praying towns was continually being seized by the English. As settlers rapidly increased in population in the 1700s, they gained control of more and more land from the descendants of Wampanoag, Nipmunk, and other tribes. For example, a deed from Natick, Massachusetts, John Elliott's original praying town, signed in 1760 by three American Indian women, Leah Chalcom, Esther Sudak, and Hepzibeth Pajun, shows the transfer of 31 acres of land to prominent English colonist Ephraim Bacon. Accumulation of land and continued English population growth created an environment where the remaining Indians of former praying towns were met with poverty and driven into debt. As their territory vanished, a generation of Christian American Indians who had just established a world for themselves had nowhere else to go. It is in these final chapters of the praying Indians that Simon George of Ponkapog lived, on one of the last apple orchards in town still owned by natives. By the 1730s, Ponkapog Orchard property, once leased out by the American Indians, was largely seized and controlled by the English. Simon George died in 1739 and was buried on his own property, where the neighborhood kids of Canton would stumble upon his bones 240 years later. The property was then inherited by a man named Jacob Wilbur, who was also buried behind the orchard. Wilbur's wife, Mary, was the last Ponkapog native to own the property. Living until 1852, Mary Burr not only outlasted Wilbur and her second husband Seymour, but lived to see Ponkapog and the praying Indian world decline into non-existence. On her grave in Canton Center reads, Like the leaves in November, so sure to decay, have the Indian tribes all passed away. Or did they? After this break, we'll go to Natick to find out. The Department of Political Science at UMass Amherst offers online education courses that give you the flexibility to gain skills, fulfill requirements, and earn credits. 
The department houses majors in political science and legal studies, giving you the opportunity to take a wide range of courses with the same rigorous academic standards as on-campus courses. Courses being offered for spring 2019 range from introduction to legal studies to popular music, politics, and the law. For more information on how to enroll, visit their website at www.umass.edu-cpe-enroll or call at 413-545-2438. We're here in Natick, Massachusetts at the Natick Historical Society Museum. As the first praying Indian town, Natick is an important place to visit in order to learn about the end of the world of the praying Indians. To give some context, the museum is located in the Bacon Free Library in the center of Natick, named after the same Bacon family from the deed that we mentioned earlier, who gained control of American Indian property. The library is located at 58 Elliott Street, down the street from the Elliott Church. The Natick Historical Society Museum currently has about 35 artifacts, and several relate to the praying Indians. The largest and most noticeable artifact is the desk of the Indian minister, Daniel Takawambe. We'll hear from the director of the museum about the importance of this desk and the relevance of the other praying Indian items in the possession of the Native Historical Society. So I, my name is Nikki Lefebvre and I'm the director of Natick Historical Society which was founded in 1870 and we've held a, a museum which we now call the Natick History Museum in this building, um, the lower level of the Bacon Free Library since 1880. So this is one of our uh, most important objects, it's uh, the pulpit desk of Daniel Takawambet and Daniel Takawambet was um, an Algonquin Indian and he was um, the first um, among the Indians to become an ordained minister trained by John Elliott. And this desk is what he used to um, deliver and prepare um, his um, sermons. And uh, what's really interesting about it is the sort of mix of styles that you see. You can tell that it's inspired by um, a European style pulpit, but it's got a lot of interesting details um, almost feather work on the sides and on the feet. Um, and we do know that it was made by two uh, Algonquin Indians, we don't have the names, um, but it's a really interesting piece because it sort of captures the story of what happened here in the 1651 with sort of European people and ideas sort of converging um, with local indigenous people and their ideas. The fact that the desk of the first ordained Indian minister is now held in the Bacon Free Library is somewhat incongruous, but not unexpected. The Bacon family is an example of one family that began the process of taking land from the praying Indians in Natick. Um, the Natick Historical Society has a number of deeds, which are evidence of the way that land was transferred um, from Native people living into the, in this area to um, English and other European people who um, who accrued lots of land, the land of the town, over the course of the 18th century. And this particular it's no surprise that the praying Indians were not able to preserve their own history. We have to commend those who are working to preserve the history today, such as the directors of Massachusetts Historical Societies, the Harvard Peabody Museum, and cultural societies. However, preserving history is not always enough. We wanted to find out more about how people in Natick today view the praying Indians, and whether or not the world of Natick can even remember that part of their past. So I would say that um, Natick residents not only know about the history of the settlement of this town, um, but a lot of them feel quite proud of the history of, of the town as one of um, the praying settlements established by John Elliott. Um, sort of hard not to know, we're in the John Elliott Historic yeah. District. 
um, the, the sort of seal is, uh, is all over the place in Natick. Um, and as far as the historical society is concerned, our most popular programs have to do with the Praying Indians, and people are very eager to learn um, anything they can about it. And I, I do think um, I came to the historical society fairly recently, and I think that um, as proud as, as Natick is of this heritage, I think we also have a lot more to learn um, as far as different perspectives on what the praying settlement meant to um, anybody who was connected to it, um, to, to Native people and European descended people, and those of us who live here now and have inherited uh, this heritage. It seems as though the legacy of the praying Indians is remembered by some citizens of Natick, but not all. A world can still end and be remembered, and in the course of our research, we have concluded that the world of the praying Indians did end. Though there are still some celebrations of the history and remembrance events, we could not find substantial evidence to suggest that the world of the praying Indians is ongoing. There is a memorial on Deer Island, which is now a large wastewater treatment plant. There are a few, not many, cultural groups and church services now and then, including a traditional praying Indian wedding ceremony that was performed in 2015 at the Elliott Church in Natick. We also learned that there is a praying Indian group based in Natick. However, the members of that group are not necessarily descendants from John Elliott's established praying Indian community. Additionally, the group has not been active since 2015 and we were not able to contact them. And of course, there are a few historical relics, the majority of which are located on Elliott Street in a library deeded to the town by the family that once took land from praying Indians. And Simon George's bones, fatefully discovered by two white children, are now located at the Peabody Museum on the Harvard University campus. The story of the praying Indians is a story of religious conversion, cultural transformation, and political manipulation. It's easy to think that John Elliott and other colonists encouraged the establishment of praying towns in order to help American Indians survive. However, it's more likely that praying towns were a way for colonists to politicize the existence of American Indians. Initially, praying Indians could use their Christianization and assimilation as a means of survival, but when difficult times began, such as the King Philip's War, it was clear that their Christianization could not save them. Their world ended, and their subsequent mark on Massachusetts history is noticeable but faint. Faint because their world ended, but noticeable because a world ended can still be remembered. This episode of Final Examination was hosted by Nate Reynolds and Abby McDonough. It was edited by Mike Orlando and produced by Greg Fournier. The material was researched by Deepika Singh and Catherine Esten. Special thanks go to Nikki Lefebvre and Maria Van Hool from the Natick Historical Society, the UMass Library staff, notably Lisa DiValentino, the Commonwealth Honors College, and the UMass Amherst Political Science Department. The original score for this podcast was composed by Mike Orlando. Guitar was played by Greg Fournier, saxophone by Catherine Esten, and violin by Deepka Singh. Greg Fournier and Mike Orlando provided additional vocals. This podcast was produced by students at the University of Massachusetts Amherst as part of Political Science 390, a course on the politics of the end of the world, led by Assistant Professor Paul Musgrave. It is licensed under a Creative Commons No Derivatives 4.0 international license.